0: Hello, I'm Ollie Henderson, and welcome back to a new series, Series 9 of the Future Work Life Podcast. And this time, we'll be returning to the usual format of one-to-one interviews, although I might throw a couple of special episodes in there too, because several of the same themes keep popping up in my conversations with business and leaders about work, present and future. So I'll share more about that over the coming weeks. But for today, I've got a great guest to kick things off. After a 25-year career in leadership roles, Ten years ago, he wrote a book offering a unique perspective on what it takes to bring out the best of the people who work with and for you. Mark C. Crowley's book, Lead from the Heart, was both a rallying call to consider the impact of how your behavior makes others feel, but more literally, it drew on scientific research that demonstrate how your heart, that real physical thing beating in your chest, affects how you think and drives human motivation and achievement. Ten years on, his work is taught in universities and Mark hosts a successful podcast featuring some of the world's most well-respected business and leadership experts. Before we jump into my conversation with Mark, a quick reminder that you can now pre-order my book, Work Life Flywheel, Harness the Work Revolution and Reimagine Your Career Without Fear which will arrive through your letterbox on the 17th of January next year. I'm also now sharing how the lessons I've learned through my career and research can help shape businesses' approaches to career development and performance. So if you're interested in planning something for your team, do get in touch. Right, let's get down to business. Here's my conversation with Mark C. Crowley. Look, Mark, real pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks so much for joining me. Nice to meet you, Ali. I'd like to start actually at the beginning of your book, And you might have been asked this before, so I apologize, but I was really struck with how honest you were at the beginning of your book, particularly about the relationship with your father. And I'm just really intrigued whether you've always had the courage to speak so openly about your personal experience or whether that's something that emerged through the process of writing your book.
1: So that's a really in- insightful question, actually, and the answer is: I, I think I've generally been—I'm—I'm I'm a no pun intended—wear your heart on your sleeve kind of a person. <laughs> um, but there's a story to this. Um, so, for your audience. My father, my my mom died suddenly when I was very young. And uh, from that point forward, my father raised me and his instincts were just to destroy my spirit. Like he wanted to cripple me, my self-confidence, and he did a really effective job of it because he just yelled and screamed some really harsh stuff over and over and over from my childhood. And then he kicked me out of the house right after I graduated from high school. And he was, by this point, he was a very wealthy man and no money he offered me. He didn't even go to help me find a place to live. It was over. Our relationship was over until he died 15 years later. And I went to see him in the hospital to say goodbye. And he, even at that moment, couldn't apologize or say that he was sorry for the harm that he had caused and so I you know I live with all of that but I also kind of found a way despite those early challenges to graduate from college it was a very painful experience but I managed to do it last couple of years I ended up doing very very well in college so I had that sense that like I can achieve, like I proved to myself that I wasn't the abject failure that he told me that I was going to be. But that was a driving force for me for a really long time, like proving that Mm -hmm. he wasn't right. And so somehow I managed to be very successful in my career. And part of it has to do with everything we're talking about, how I led people, managed to get unbelievable performance out of people. And so I just kept getting promoted. And so I had this sense that, okay, I'm good, I'm effective, I'm talented. And so I kept going and kept getting these great positions and opportunities. In the moment that I started writing the book, I went back to being the crippled guy. And it was really, truly one of those moments where I just couldn't convince myself that I was a writer, I had anything meaningful to say, that I could actually pull it off and so i was really truly struggling with this so much so that like my wife just like out of the blue she said i've got this friend she's very spiritual just go talk to her see if she has any advice and i knew this woman she's kind of like not from this planet she has insights that very you see very rarely in anybody and so I thought, you know, this is like go to lords, <laughs> you know, do something that's like I need a miracle here because I, this isn't working. And what yeah. she said to me was that the book was one of those things in the back of my mind, like being an author was such in conflict with what I was told that all that was coming back up again. And so she said, what you need to do is you need to tell your story. It needs to be part of the book. That's how you learn to lead yeah. this way. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell you, Ollie, that I told her, no effing way <laughs> am I telling my story. And she goes, not only are you telling your story, it's going to be the preface of your book and you need to go write it now. And I took her at her word and I went to my university library where I've spent hours and hours as an undergrad And I brought a pad of paper and a pen and I thought, okay, I'm going to make fast work of this. And I couldn't get a word out. What I was doing was reliving everything that I'd experienced in sequence. And to see it as a movie, as opposed to the day-to-day experiences, it happened, you move on to the next day, you know, you keep moving. But when you see it in progress, it was like, wow, that was like really, really oppressive. And it was a very painful experience to write that. But I knew she was right when she said it needs to be the story because it needs to be at the beginning because I didn't want to write it like a traditional leadership book. I didn't want to, I I wanted people to have something different. And I knew I had something to say in terms of the story and how it got me where it got me is, is really the whole point. You know, this is how I learned it. This is why I see the world very differently. And so I, I look at her and I just think her name was Lisa and these are sort of like gifts from the universe that happened to me through the entire process of writing the book. So it's absolutely a fantastic question and very few people know that backstory.
0: Yeah. no, It's so interesting, isn't it? Leave from the heart is the, the mantra that you share with people. and it But because it, it's not just a metaphorical thing, is it? There's something about the heart and you start your book talking very much about physiology, you know, about what does how can the heart contribute to the way that we think and the way that we lead? So, I mean, to tell us what's the heart got to do with leadership?
1: Well, I mean, you're like, I'm like, do you know, those little bells when you go into the, like the post office, you know, and you, you hit the thing and then somebody comes out, you know, I wish I had one of those because this is like (laughs) the second question that you've asked. I'm like, how, what made him think that, I mean, you're, you're asking really informed questions. And so all of a sudden, have you noticed that people are using language like heart-led leader and, you know, mm. heart leadership? Have you noticed that that's yeah. – well, I wrote this book 11 years ago and, and like, paid somebody $10,000 to advise me on how to build the platform and build exposure. And out of the gate, she just said, never, ever, ever use that expression again. Like, effing stop. Those were her words. <laughs> like, stop effing was her. Yeah. And she used the full expression. And I paid her a ton of money to tell me this. So the world wasn't ready for it 11 years ago. We think it's soft and we think it's weak and sentimental. Um, But now all of a sudden, you know, and I think I played a role in this in terms of, you know, just helping to communicate why this has to be the future. But what I think distinguishes my point of view on this is that, to use your word, I'm not talking about a metaphor here. I'm not talking about a metaphorical heart. I'm saying, and this is why I had the courage. And, you know, I mean, she was saying to me, just call the book Killer Engagement and people will buy it. Call it Leaf from the Heart and you're going to get kicked in the, you know, in the stomach, basically, is what she was implying to me. And she was right. I mean, I, I, I paid a price for this. But in the process of doing the research for the book, I basically discovered... So it really starts with, like, I had to ask myself, what was I doing? Like, why did people scale mountains for me consistently? And every every role I ever had starting right out of college, everybody who responded the same way, man, woman, doesn't matter age, doesn't matter education, doesn't matter the job, family, the challenges, everybody was responding to this. So I knew it was like a human thing. And I realized one day I was affecting the hearts in people. Mm -hmm. and you would think like, wow, what a great epiphany, how cool for you. And instead I thought it was like the worst thing that could have happened to me because coming from like financial services where I spent most of my career, I thought anybody hearing heart and leadership is going to go like, what, what happened to him? Like the guy's been gone for a couple of years, wrote a book and like now this, like, like seriously, you know, (laughs) like that's what you did. Like, and So my wife basically said to me, she said, well, you've already proved it. You already know what you did work. So go see if you can find some evidence, which led me to Mm. the conclusion that I was affecting hearts and people. Like I had to think about it. Like I'd never thought about it ever. I just took it all for granted. And from there, I I reached out to a world-class cardiologist, cardio surgeon, and just basically laid out my premise. I think I was affecting the hearts and people by the way I was leading them. And what she said was, we believe for like 300 years that the heart is just a pump, but we're now discovering that that's just simply not true, that the heart has its own form of intelligence that's influencing our choices, our behavior, our decisions we make. So in my book, I actually say literally that, that engagement is a decision of the heart. And so the reason there's the word heart in the title is because of the science, if we understand human beings and we understand the our new understanding of how humans are influenced, then we need to take that new information and we need to apply it on how we manage people.
0: Yeah. When you, and you said before, have you noticed how more people are using expressions like that? And I think empathy was one of the most undervalued skills probably before COVID and the one of the most valuable skills, particularly for managers, working with people in all sorts of circumstances um, based in all sorts of locations with their very own challenges, have, have being able to be empathetic and put themselves in their shoes was kind of a demonstration that you were going to be able to adapt to this new world does that play into what you're talking about how does the heart manifest in the way that people behave is it the type of skills that we use or the skills that we demonstrate to people like empathy
1: so um first of all empathy is one of those things that emerged but you know it's really interesting i i I think we're in there's a there's a book by a Stanford business school professor. He, he had a co-author. I can't remember who, who he was. So I'll just call out the title. It was called The Knowing Doing Gap. And the sense that we hear empathy and we go, oh yeah, we need to be more empathetic. I'm not seeing a whole lot of evidence that we've made the shift into actually becoming more empathetic in business. Um, I simply just don't see it yet. Mm. And then the next step of that is, so I can be empathetic, to you an experience you have as your manager, right? So for example, at the beginning you told me you've got three kids and at any one point in time they might run in and, inter- you know, sort of like interfere with the conversation, right? So let's say that one comes in, another comes in and now you're looking at me like, you know, I'm sorry, Mark, but this is kind of what yeah. we're doing. I can be empathetic to you, and but I can also be annoyed, right? So, but the next step, is to, to be compassionate and this is sort of you know I'm going to come back to your question but it, it, it's this, this it's one thing to feel the struggle that somebody's having it's another to say how can I help you? not to say hmm. I can solve your problem but is there something that I can do within my powers to make that better for you? So really if you to, to answer your question it's I guess the best the best way to say this is that. We now know through science that if I demonstrate interest in you if I ask you tell me about your story tell me about your life tell me about your family immediately I'm giving you an experience of positive emotions somebody somebody is genuinely interested in you and that creates a feeling inside of you and that feeling is actually rather profound if if I say to you ollie um, You know, I want to work with you for a really long time. So I'm going to send you to this class. I want to develop you. I want, I want to give you opportunities to grow. Same thing. Mark cares about me. Mark is interested in me. He's not only interested in me, but he's showing it to me by being uh, you know, setting me up for training and opportunities to learn. If I say to you, hey, you know that report you just did? I can't believe you got it done this fast and you did it perfectly. And I just want you to know how incredibly grateful I am because I wanted to give it to my boss early and you just made it easy for me. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Again, there's a feeling that's going on in there and appreciation is another positive emotion. It turns out human beings are hardwired to thrive on positive emotions. We need them in order to thrive. And unfortunately the world can be a shitty place and just, you know, things that happen to you. I just, I just spent a thousand dollars to buy a new iPhone. And the day later I dropped it on the floor leaving my office last night and cracked it. And I've ruined my new phone, right? This is just life. That's a negative emotion because you go through it all. You go through the disappointment and the anger and the frustration. That's life. But if you're a manager that does all the things that I just described, you know, me doing for you, I'm creating an offset. I'm giving you a disproportionate number of positive emotions. And it mm. turns out science has also proved that we are in a, we'll call it optimal level of performance. We are, we are able to perform at an optimal level when we are living in a least four to one ratio of positive emotions to negative emotions. So now think about that. So if you're being kind to someone, you're giving someone attention, you're, you're developing them, you're giving them appreciation, you're giving them positive emotions. What do we do at work? We create fear for people. We tell them if they don't meet their goals, there's going to be a scolding or a punishment, or you may not have your job. We threaten that if we don't hit our numbers, there'll be layoffs. We, we tell people that, um, uh, you know, that you're not going to get any opportunities in this company unless you do it my way and the way, you know, so you have to buy into somebody else's philosophy. And we, we decided that oppressing people in the workplace is a good way of getting their performance, keeping them under your thumb a little bit, keeping them in some level of fear, intimidation, that, that kind of stuff. Negative, 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 negative. So what we think is going to drive performance might drive it in the, because fear will make you run. You know, you, you see a Bengal tire coming at you and you're going to run as fast as you can to dodge it. But you can't dodge it forever, right? You just can't mm. keep running and running and running and running. And so my point is, is that everything we've always believed about squeezing as much out of people, Turns out to be the worst possible thing that you can do for people. The more you care, the more you support, the more you do all the things that I'm talking about, you're creating an environment inside of the human body that allows people to thrive. And when people are thriving, they can be more creative. They can be more committed. They'll be more loyal. They'll, they'll do everything you need them to do. And this is what I found in my own direct experience without having any of that science behind me. I just saw it happen over and over
0: yeah interesting. interesting i mean there is this sort of general talk that there's a bit of a, a global skill shortage in certain areas so in, in certain areas we're lacking the right training and development of people to develop the skills that are needed in the modern workplace in the future workplace but one area that people very often cite is management skills so with everything you said in mind well i suppose this is a two-part question firstly do most leaders then not consider how they make other people feel? Is that something from your experience that, as a rule, that just isn't, isn't front of mind for people? They don't think, all right, how is my behavior, how is my management style going to make people feel? But the second part of it is, what do we do about it? If that's the case... How do you train for that when we're thinking about training a new generation of managers or even frankly, the current generation, what should we be doing? What should we be doing this? Because the technical skills to require a team and, you know, these lessons we learn about how we should communicate via email or Slack or whatever, do they pale into insignificance against the type of lessons that
1: you're sharing? So your first question is, do most leaders consider how people feel? And I think, you know, the answer instinctively, the- And 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 so it would be easy for me to say that we've got a lot of really bad managers out there that I could make that statement and a lot of people would go, hell, yeah. And by the way, there's lots of science. There's lots of research that shows it. Engagement, job satisfaction, number of people who think that they work Uh, There was just a Gartner study that showed that only 29% of people feel that they work for somebody that like manages them in a human way. I call it humane. So there's that, right? But I'm not willing to do that. What I'm willing to say is, is that they're playing the game all wrong. And it's because that's how we've taught them to play the game. So if you teach them that there's a new game and that, that there's a better way to succeed here, then... You're giving them permission to manage in a way that actually is pretty natural. Like when, if, if, if I was working for you. Would you rather be barking orders at me and making me feel uncomfortable and threatening me and sending emails to me on a Sunday night saying, you know, it's five o'clock on Sunday. I'm about to sit down for dinner with my family. And you go, hey, Mark, um, you know, I just reviewed your report and, uh, you know, it's really lacking. And when you get in the office tomorrow, I I really need you to fix this because I'm I'm not happy. So what have you what have you just done to me? You just ruined my weekend. You've just ruined my night. I can't. I can't focus on anything else. That I'm in trouble. That I've got to fix it. And so now I'm like, my wife is saying to me, you know, why? What's going on? Why are you angry? And why are you? Why are you distracted? And why aren't you enjoying your dinner? And I'm like, because my boss is. Do you want to be that person? Like, wouldn't it be better if if you said? You know, Monday morning, hey, Mark, you know, come in here and talk for five minutes. I just want to see if I can help you improve this because it's not where I need it to be. It's not the same expectation. It's not the same thing. But you didn't ruin my evening. You didn't didn't give me this marination of negative emotions. I think we've taught managers to be fault finders. It's like a flow chart. If it's going well, we don't say anything. If it's going badly, we go, hey, Ollie, you know, this is a problem. And so people are like all he ever does is call out the problems he never says mm-hmm. thank you never says appreciation because we, ha- we we think that we don't really need to do that Ollie knows that I think he's doing a good job it's all that and so it, yeah. it really I think it starts with you know what people have said to me repeatedly is what your book has done is give me permission to manage in a way that I think I've always wanted to it's it's okay to be kind to people it's okay to be thoughtful for people. I'll give you an example. I'm doing some work for a company. And so I put together a whole communication for the CEO and, and with expectations like, a, like a, an assignment for his whole senior management team. And, and it's, you know, it's going to take them at least a couple of hours to put this thing together, each of them. Right. And then they have to give the feedback to him, which is going to come to me and I'm going to compile it. So there's work involved. So Because of my schedule and what's going on, I ended up working all weekend on it. And so Sunday morning, literally at 630 in the morning, my time, I finished it and I sent it to him. And and I just uh, right before I sent it, I put up, P.S., do not send this out today. Wait until Monday morning. And he's a, this guy, like he's a, I want to get this done kind of a thing. Get it off my table. It's over. And so, you know, when did he send it out? Like six o'clock in the morning on Monday. That's how anxious he was to get this thing out (laughs) to people. But, you know, if you're sitting around, so if if, if you're sitting around at seven o'clock having a cup of coffee and you get an email from your boss saying, here's the project I need you to work on. And this is, you know, this is the information I need even if you're not going to start, even if you're going off to play golf or go for a hike or whatever, it's in your consciousness that this is hanging over you. That is a drip, yeah. drip, drip of negative emotions. So it's just think about how people are going to feel and decide whether or not you want them to feel that. I think that's sort of the guidepost. Yeah.
0: yeah. My experience of the gradual shift to remote work and you know it remains to be seen whether many companies stick with quite so much of their workforce working remotely as frequently as they do but one thing I think a lot of leaders seems to have struggled with is the lack of control that they have and particularly that idea of being able to visibly see people it just frankly sat in their seat, but also how they respond to instruction. Whether it's framed in a way that you've done or given in the sort of direct direct orders, command and control style, lots of people have struggled with it. Whereas I think there's a lot of the survey data and, and the data I've collected have shown that most people now, they're, it's just their expectations of flexibility have fundamentally changed and they're probably not going to go back. They expect flexible work. Now, here's a question. Could you reassure those leaders that there are benefits to giving people more freedom and flexibility particularly over how they plan and execute their day
1: so the answer is i'm going to give you the formula for managing people remotely and by the way because i fundamentally believe in uh, we we know that we need to be, we're social animals. Like I, I like it would be better if you and I are in the same room having this conversation. No, you're 5,000 miles away from me. So this is a miracle that we can actually do this. And that's a very cool thing. But if I never get to meet you in person, I have to have some connections with other people. Otherwise I'm going to wither. So yeah. when you work with a team regularly, um, you know, I'm, I, After a while, people really miss being with each other. So I don't buy into full-time remote work. But I also don't buy into, I need to see Ollie working. Like, hey, Ollie, keep your camera on all day so I can see what you're doing. Like, or, you know, come into the office every day so I can observe you. Like, what am I observing? Like, what is it that I'm seeing you do in the office that proves to me that you're going to get what I need you to get done by the end of the week or the end of the month. It's just that you're there. Mm-hmm. So I have this, the symbolic Ollie is in the office working, but I don't know if you're playing Sudoku. I don't, you know, so it really, I think we just have to like pump, punch that balloon or pop that balloon and say, that's really not the solution. So here is the solution. Start off by being very clear with what your expectations are. Ollie, this is what I'm expecting. These are your goals. If you have the ability to do this, give people metrics. Like to, like, For example, if you're managing a sales force, then everybody knows where they are. They can see what their performance is. They can see what their peers are. So they know where they're standing, right? Have a weekly conversation with every single person that works for you. And if you can't do that on a regular basis, then your span of control is too large. So if you say, I'm too busy and I can't connect with Ollie this week, I'll get back with him next week. That's a fail. It's a fail. Mm. So, and by the way, the conversation isn't to say, Ollie, where are you on this? Where, when are you going to get this to me? I need this report. Oh, by the way, could you call Joe and, you know, tell him that I need this? And that's not the conversation. The conversation is, how are you? What can I do to help you? Now, if you want to bring up something work related and say I'm struggling with this project or whatever, I'm here to help you. You can have other conversations, and we have those conversations regularly. We have team meetings where we're updating each other on what's going on, and you know, you, you check in with people. You're getting emails. You know how where things are for the most part. It's really just the the faux con- connection, but important nevertheless. So if you're in a hybrid have that meeting in person. If people work remotely, then have that meeting just like we're doing, but have it every single week and don't break the habit. And then the piece that they most people have the hardest is, there's a, I don't want to call it this because it sounds very heartless, but it, you get the idea. It, there's a day of reckoning. Like, Ollie, did you meet your goals? Right? Mm-hmm. So I have to hold you accountable. So If I say to you, you know, once a month, we're going to look at your performance and we're going to review how you're doing. And this is not a threat. This is just normal work review. How are you doing? Did you meet those goals? How, How did you exceed those goals? So it's giving people clear direction, giving people massive trust and holding people accountable. And to the extent that you can update the team on how you're doing during the course of that month, everybody clearly understands they're behind schedule, ahead of schedule, on schedule, their meeting goal, they're not meeting goal. They have a big goal ahead of them. They know where they stand, but you're not oppressing people every minute. So yeah. I, where I where I live, I have a – we. when I wrote my book, my wife said, you need a place to work. So we built the studio where I am, and it's yeah. very cool. It's got glass doors and i'm looking out at the yard and I, you know i spend a lot of time out there on the weekend so it's beautiful yeah. and i've got a huge magnolia tree and it drops a couple months 3 months a year june july and august just dropping leaves all the time so like in the middle of the day i'll just go get a rake and i'll just go rake up all the leaves And this is in the middle of my workday. And when I first started, I sort of like felt a little guilty, like, you know, my cheating, my employer, who's me, you know, and and then I was like, this gives me joy because I'm looking out there and I'm, you know, I'm basically it's beautiful now because all the leaves are gone and that's the way I like it. So if I was working for a boss and, you know, they found out that I was raking my leaves, it sounds like Mark's a slacker. You know, but I work seven days a week. You know, I work till nine o'clock at night most days. I'm up at 4.30. I work my ass off. So bosses tend to see the raking the leaves and they don't see that he's sending out emails at nine o'clock at night. It, and this is the problem. Stop yeah. worrying about where people are and hold people accountable for results and trust them to get there. And you will see that people will deliver. They don't want to let you down.
0: Yeah. No, I mean that that whole fundamental problem with presenteeism, by which I mean, you know, the the idea that just by being somewhere, whether it's on a seat in an office or in front of that Zoom screen, that someone is productive. The idea that's how you measure whether someone's doing a good job or not is a very good sign that you don't actually understand what somebody, what outcomes somebody's helping to deliver. So, I completely agree with that. Just coming back to trust, trust for me is so important. Clearly, but. I think hiring comes into this conversation because it's about trusting that you've got the right person to do the job. And I think hiring is a pretty, it's a very really difficult skill and I've heard some really interesting conversations. Actually i will I'll put people onto the Roger Martin conversation that you had earlier this year oh. when you were talking about hiring and I know you have some great ideas to that. So I thought we'd just focus on hiring for a moment. So in in the book, you talk about this four practices of leading from the heart. And I wonder how they feed into um, the way that you hire people. I mean, do, do these things overlap? Do you, does that come into the way that we think about identifying and bringing the right people on board?
1: Well, um, I'm actually really proud of that chapter um, because it, it taps into everything that I learned. And it was, I think, my approach to how you hire I can't say like, I'm the only person in the world that thinks like this, but I know that the way that I thought about it was um, setting a little higher expectation than I think most people do. So start off with the fact that I would never fill a position just to fill one, which is Mm. sounds like a low hurdle, right? Why would you do that? But people do it all the time. I got to get this position yeah. filled. So we take somebody and they go, "Hey, you kind of look like you can do the job." So go do the job. And the reason I won't ever do that is not because some people can be trained to do a job, but if they can't persuade you that their heart is going to be in in it, and I mean that literally, but that's a metaphor that we all use. Mm-hmm. If you you know, why would you want to do this work above all things? You know, I mean, there are people that get up on those scaffolds and clean windows on, you know, 50 story buildings. I'm like, I wouldn't want to clean windows on a one story building. So, like, how did that happen? Well, my dad was in this business and I just have always loved watching get up there. And I love heights and I love being outdoors and like, okay, you're telling me something about who you are. So if you can get inside of people and understand what it is about this job that appeals to them and you can feel that there's a sense of excitement around it, then you're kind of talking to the right person. And it was interesting because we talked about this this cardiologist that I talked to. And I remember 12 years ago, and she just said to me like early on, she goes, do you realize how many times we take people and we just put them into positions without thinking about whether or not it's going to be a good fit for them? We're always just thinking about ourselves. We're always just thinking... I'm in power here. I get to make the decision about whether or not they're hired or not. But then they work for mm-hmm. us and we go, hey, you're doing a good job here, Ollie. So I'm going to put you over here. You loved doing this, but you don't love doing that. But I'm thinking I'm, you know, doing you a big favor because you're going to get a buck an hour reason or something. And you're like, I don't want to do this kind of work. This is what makes me happy. So start there. Like, is your heart in it? Um, but I think, you know, one of the other things that um, that I've done from a hiring standpoint that I learned was invaluable was to stop trusting myself. Um, sometimes you just want somebody to be the right person. There's something about them that's attractive. You know, you kind of think, oh, that's a cool background or, you know, they're a nice person or whatever. And you get sidetracked into thinking eh, I can make her work or I can make him work. You know, that's going to be a fit. So. um I used to run a large network of retail bank branches, you know, where you go and get loans and checking accounts and all that kind of stuff. And so I was hiring for a manager and I just like had this instinct. Don't ask me why proved to be a really good one. So what I said was I'm going to interview the candidates that come to me and I'm going to pick like three, like the best And then I went out to three of the top performing managers on my team and said, I want you to come in and I want you to sit with me and we're going to pick who's going to be the next manager. So we interviewed three people and I had this one woman completely in mind. And so we interviewed three people back to back. And by the way, I said, this has to be a consensus. So we all have to agree. And the reason that I picked these three people is they're already performing. They know the job. They know what Mm -hmm. kind of person is going to work well with them. They know what the expectations are. They can kind of feel it. They intuitively understand it. So we interview the three people. I've got this one woman in mind. I think she's the candidate. And she had left, she had some, like, you know, she kind of had a little bit of a breakdown, to be honest with you. And she ended up leaving, taking a six month leave and then coming back. But she had been a really good manager before and I thought she's she's gonna be good. So there was this young guy who was an assistant manager, didn't have quite the experience, but had a career outside of banking. And um, he was sort of the second guy, but I didn't think he was ready. We interviewed the three people, I've got to go to the bathroom. I run to the bathroom, I come back and they go, we want Rick. And I went, Rick. And I'm like, no, it's this other person, you know, the Susie. And they're like, no way. She's, she's still not, she's not ready to come back. And we can feel that. We, we think he's much more interested, much more excited. And so I had a decision to make. Am I going to, am I going to defy them or am I going to listen to them? And again, by the way, your intuition Mm -hmm. is in your heart. It's not here. And I just realized, Ollie, that I'm going to trust them. And they were absolutely right. That other woman never returned. She never came back. And Rick is now a regional manager for another bank in the South in the U.S. And his career has gone on to be great. So, um, but they kept me from making a bad decision, which is really the whole point this is another question It's partly
0: related to hiring I suppose in the I wonder if you can spot this type of person but also I wonder how you potentially can train somebody to think like this and it's the idea of a multiplier so I think it's Liz Wiseman I think is the uh, yep. the person who coined this phrase but I think we can all recognize these types of person they're not necessarily the, it's not the same as this sort of analogy between I don't know if you know the expression uh, a radiator or a drain so some people either radiate you know they either you know, good, positive energy and <laughs> yeah. some people rain away. This and I've always liked that expression. And I think we know people are on a spectrum, but I love the idea of a multiplier. I mean, would you firstly explain what that is? But I wonder from a hiring perspective, whether it is possible to spot that characteristic in somebody.
1: That's okay. I wish I had my bell again. It's another great question. I actually had Liz Weisman on my podcast a few years ago, and we talked about this, but being a multiplier it actually kind of ties into your energy image too. The radiator mm. or the drain is there's an energetic exchange. And are you giving people positive energy? Because people feel that and it affects people. So if you're like a downer all the time or you're always pissed off about something, there's an energy that's being conveyed even if you don't have to say I'm pissed off about something. So yeah. I think there's a, there's, a, there's a big element of that. But um, so start off by feeling it. Like, what are you feeling from this person? You, I mean, right out of the gate, you can you, you start there. What am I feeling? And you know, if you're getting a good vibe, that literally means vibration. That's an energetic exchange. You're like, okay, that's a good start. But here's my magic question, Holly, Have you ever go along with me? So it's two questions actually. Have you Hi. in your career ever? intentionally helped grow and develop someone like you said, I'm going to help you, Joe, to get to mm-hmm. the next level, whatever that is. So whatever yeah. the next progression is, have you ever done that with somebody like intentionally helped them to grow? And then they actually got, you know, the next promotion.
0: Yeah. It's the, it's the thing I'm most proud of from my, the last business I ran that the more that, well, a dozen or more people I can imagine literally sitting down, having that conversation. Okay.
1: So now you're my candidate, and I say to you that Have you ever done it? And you go all the time. I've done it all the time. So I say to you, Ollie, tell me specifically the name of the person and what you actually did. At this point, yeah, it's binary. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. binary. <laughs> they they either time. have I. I could talk to you yeah. all day about all the people that I've developed, or they're going to go. Well, and you know, good. I you know, I kind of told her. Like I thought, you know, I mean. Game over yeah, if they yeah, cannot. Yeah, yeah. And it, so my premise is, is, is really, truly, if you don't love people, if you don't want to see other people succeed, then don't get into a leadership role. Like start there. Yeah. And so if you start off with, I want, that's part of my legacy like, like that's where I thrive is by helping other people succeed and he- helping mm. uh, so that they can come back and say, Ollie, thank you, man. Those, those three years I worked for you, I'm doing so very well. And it's because of all the things you taught me. There's something that's everlasting and powerful about that. And yeah. But you have to thrive in that. Some people go, I don't really care. Like I helped you, but I don't know what I did because it wasn't intentional. I was much more focused on myself. And if I helped you, good. For You, I can tell, like, you get a big joy out of that, and you are going to make a much better manager than the person that goes, oh, I don't care, look good for you, but yeah, you know.
0: definitely. And actually, by the way, you made a good point there, which is kind of applicable to any interview situation, which is just ask a follow up question and ask for specifics, and you can very easily see when people trip up. And <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful
0: thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's simple. Well, yeah. I right, really enjoyed this conversation. I've got one more question for you. And again, it relates to one of your guests. And I think he's a two-time guest. It's Marshall Goldsmith. For people who don't know him, he's probably the, the most well-known executive coach out there. But he's always full of wisdom. And he asked a great question at the end of the uh, the show I most recently listened to. And it's this. First, you're imagine you're 95 years old. You're about to die, but you're given a gift. You get to go back in time. And for this moment, you get to tell yourself today, the, the you of right now, what's really important and what's not important. I wonder what you would describe as being your answer in in that situation. Thinking ahead, what does a 95-year-old Mark C. Crowley think about the world and what would he advise you to do right now?
1: That's a really wonderful question. Um, And I actually forgot that Marshall asked it. Um, But my answer would be, uh, I will say this, Ali, that, you know, when I – First came out with this idea of leading from the heart. There were a lot of people that thought I was out of my mind and still do. They still think, oh, he's got to be a woo-woo guy or a spiritualist or religious nut or someone who doesn't get business. These are the quick assumptions that people make. And so... I believe that I'm speaking truth. I believe that I have the goods. Like I'm convinced of it. I've spent my whole career managing this way. I also when I reflect on how I was raised and what that taught me. I kind of look at my life and I say, wait a minute, like, this is why I'm here. Like, this is my purpose to do this. I was. This is literally why I'm on this planet. I've had those experiences so that I could treat people in a different way and see the impact, and then come back to the world and say, "If you'll just trust me, you will be an infinitely greater manager and a leader if you do these things." Um, that all sounds great, but that's not the way the world works. The world works with. I'm going to resist you because I'm comfortable doing what I do. And I think I've been successful without you. And, you know, you're asking me to do something I've never been asked to do before. I'm not sure I can. I'm a little uncomfortable with it. And so we're not going there today, at least. So I've been on this 11-year journey. And, you know, I'm waiting for my parade you know, I'm waiting for kidding, but you know, I'm waiting for people to say, okay, we, we, we totally agree with you. You've been right all along and now we want to do it like to have that kind of an impact. And so at 95, um, I will look back and say, I'm proud of myself for never quitting for writing it out, taking the punches taking as long as it's going to take in order to get there. Cause it's been an enormous sacrifice to do that. You know, I could have gone the killer engagement way and, and had this been, you know, done, but I'm really trying to get people to understand that the way we've traditionally believed we needed to manage and lead people is completely flawed. And the way we've always believed was wrong about managing people happens to be completely right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for your book. It's made an impact on the way I think about leadership, for sure. And I'm going to put links to the book and your brilliant podcast in the show notes.
1: I really appreciate it. Lovely meeting you, Ollie.
0: And that was my conversation with Mark. What a lovely guy a great approach to leadership and management if you're interested in reading and hearing more from him i've shared links to his works in the show notes now i'll be back here next week talking about the future of the workplace with phil Kirshner of mckinsey so make sure you tune into that thanks as ever for listening i'll see you here again soon